that's what I love to share in the book is just that fighting through something, but not letting the discrimination tear you down and make you become somebody that you're not, you know, turning that discrimination into power and empowerment and using that and being like, Hey, you think so low of me, but I'm going to prove to you otherwise that I can do what you think I can't do. So instead of like turning it around and it's the glass half full mentality where you look at it and you're so discouraged and depressed, it's use these words as to empower you to do something more and to get through something that you never thought you could get through. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with former Secret Service agent and author of the book Talk Back Barbie, the Secret Service Edition, Lauren Fernandez. On the surface, Lauren does not fit the stereotypical profile of a Secret Service agent, being a blonde debutante from Atlanta, Georgia. Lauren and I had a great conversation about her journey to the Secret Service, why a person should never judge a book by its cover, and how humor can be useful even in serious situations. Lauren is an absolutely hilarious person, and I had a blast chatting with her. Thank you, as always, to Misha Zarin for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast, Lauren Fernandez. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. So, Lauren, you are the author of Talk Back Barbie, a Secret Service edition, um, which from what I understand, which I've not read the book yet, but what I understand kind of highlights your experiences um, growing up in the South and then eventually becoming a Secret Service agent. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I worked for the Secret Service back in 2005 to 2006. So it's a humorous account about my time working with the Secret Service. And I just wanted a, a book where we could laugh at the Secret Service because everything out there right now is so serious. And it don't get me wrong, it's a very serious career. And it was an amazing career. But I wanted something that took the Secret Service to a whole nother light and a whole nother level. And my experience working for them definitely did that. I was a girly girl raised in the South. I was actually a debutante down here in Georgia. I just did not fit the typical stereotype of a Secret Service officer. And But I wanted that lifestyle of working for law enforcement. So that's what I did. My goal in college was to do everything I could to work for a federal law enforcement agency and I applied to the Secret Service and got through six months of intensive training and all the background information and passed all that. And I started working for the Secret Service. Awesome. So I'm curious because I'd seen that word in in probably some other media that was covering you. But um, the word debutante, what does that <laughs> word mean? <laughs> so it's like it's very old fashioned, but it basically is your parents are giving a party to society and telling them, hey, my daughter is eligible to be married. And that's mm. what it is. So it's a very Southern thing where back in the old days, they used to have parties to say, hey, this is, it, it's like the show Bridgerton. If, you, if okay. you've ever seen that, they, that's like a debutante and she's having a party, uh, basically it's a coming out party. And that's what it is, is to tell the society, hey, my daughter is ready to be married if she wants to be married. She's an old, she's so not, a woman now. <laughs> right. So it's not really, not really like an arranged marriage thing, more like a, no. like a bar mitzvah almost. Yeah. Or yeah it's kind of, just, yeah, <laughs> not religious like, I get, but no, no, no. It's, it's more of a presentation. Hey, this is what I'm showing you that my daughter is, you know, comes from this family and she can now be eligible to all the men out there. <laughs> <laughs> So you're telling me that most of the other people you worked with were not debutantes? Is that what I'm no, understanding? No, it's a very rare, <laughs> rare thing. And down here in Georgia, the society that we were a part of actually it no longer exists. So they don't even oh, have wow. it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of a rare thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm curious, and I want to talk about your, obviously, your your career and then also your, your book. Um, but I'd like to start with, you know, you mentioned you're from Georgia, what are your parents like? Or did they come from law enforcement backgrounds? Um, what was your childhood like? No, actually, we have no law enforcement in our family. We have military in our family, which is a little bit similar, but there's mm -hmm. no law enforcement in our family. And for me to want to go do this, it was a shock to a lot of people because I just didn't come across the way I look and the way I act. Just you would not think that that's something that I would have done or that I was interested in. 
But what people don't know about me is that my dad was the inspiration for me writing this book. And the reason being is because he raised my sister and I like boys. So he mm. wanted two sons. He got two daughters instead. <laughs> and because of that, he was like, hey, well, if God's going to bless me with two daughters, I'm going to raise them how I would boys. So he they, he raised us where there was no crying in baseball. You don't show your emotions. We did sports all year round. We It was just very hardcore. And he's not a military background at all. He's a CPA. So it's not like okay. <laughs> he just was raised with two other brothers and they were just very tough and emotionless. And that's how he raised my sister and me. Mm. And so doing that and being raised like that, you just kind of, I guess the law enforcement side of things just fit with my personality. And I was very interested in anything to do with CIA, FBI, all the shows, books, anything along those lines. I wanted to read about it and study about it. And I became obsessed about it. I, would, I was obsessed with the CSI show back in the day. Yeah. And that's where my passion was. And so that was my drive to just go and accomplish that dream. But nobody else, they were like, Lauren, you're not going to go do that. That's not something I can see you do. But that's where they judged a book by its cover incorrectly. <laughs> right, right. So I'm curious, you know, whenever I think of law enforcement, I think probably the, for most people, the first thing that pops to mind is local law enforcement, whether that be sheriffs or police or whatever. When did you, and maybe it was in college, I know you mentioned that you were trying at that point to, to get into federal law enforcement, but when did you, did you always think of it as federal law enforcement or did you originally think like, yeah, I'm going to be a, like a, a local cop? So it was just kind of law enforcement at first, and then it became FBI agent. So that was at 10 years of age when my dad kept grilling me every single day. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? And every day. And it was this, your typical answers, you know, a vet, a doctor, an accountant, a, whatever, just those typical mm -hmm. answers. And I, by the time I was 10, I set my mind on, I wanted to be an FBI agent. And that is what I went for. And it never changed. People just kept thinking, oh, that's going to change. She's just saying that because that's a cool career and that's what she wants to go do. Um, but I didn't change my mind. Once I had set my mind to that, I wanted to go and do that. So what is the, the selection process like then for Secret Service? I mean, again, like with the police department, I can imagine going and applying. But for something like the FBI or the CIA, or the Secret Service, it seems like, I don't know, I guess I just always in my head, which to be clear, I've not actually had this thought. Right. I don't know, to some extent, it's like they pick you or something, you know, like you're recruited or I, that's probably just a movie thing. No, right? you can be. You can be. <laughs> okay. Definitely. But most of the time people apply and they, a lot of them get rejected. And the reason being is because the application process is so daunting and so long. So I applied to the secret service nine months before I graduated college, because that's how long it was going to take for the application process to be approved. And it could have taken longer than that. It mm. could have taken me two years for the application to be approved. It just so happened that I was young. I didn't have a lot of background in the sense of, moving around a lot. So I wasn't, a lot of times when the people are applying and they've been 35, you know, 37 is the cutoff, but let's say you're older, you're 33 to 35. You've probably moved around a lot more. You've been a lot of, a lot more jobs, different stuff like that. Well, I didn't have all that. So the application process was a lot easier for me and a little bit quicker for me to get through. And that was still nine months of getting through that. Once you get through that, you take a little, just basic written exam. It's kind of like basic math and English. Once you pass that, then you do situ situational awareness questions. And those mm -hmm. are kind of spur the moment. You have to just spout off an answer to crazy questions like, hey, if this building was on fire right now, what would you do to evacuate the building to keep it calm and collected without stirring up, you know, people getting so scared and rushing everybody and running over everybody and running out of the building and creating chaos so these are questions that you have to answer in a blink of an eye. And so that's, it's, it's hard. And then after that, yeah. you pass a polygraph examination, which was the worst test I've ever taken in my whole life. That was awful. I have a stark clean record, but it was, it made you feel like you were a criminal that I should have gone to jail. Like that's how bad you feel after you leave a polygraph examination. You're like, Oh my gosh, I stole, I took that pencil from the office that one time. Does that mean I stole and so you feel like you've got to confess all this stuff and 
which you really shouldn't say something like that because then they're gonna be like well what else have you done <laughs> did <laughs> you try the like thumbtack in your shoe tactic or whatever yes and it's it's, <laughs> it's crazy and it is the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. And then after that, you have to pass six months of federal law enforcement training. That's why mm. local law enforcement, it is a little bit easier to get in because they don't have all these daunting processes and applications and everything that you have to pass. And they do have physical training you have to pass in local law enforcement, but they don't have that the same as federal. Federal, is it was six months long. So a very, wow. very long period of time. And if you didn't pass training, you did not go on to work at the White House. Right. So, I mean, is there, obviously it's not, it wouldn't be like boot camp, but is there some mm -hmm. sort of like really intensive training like that or? or yeah. So it's, really? it's pretty much like boot camp. Yeah. Okay. You're getting up at five in the morning and going and doing runs and you are doing in the middle of the runs, you're doing pushups and sit-ups and um, pull-ups and just different things like that. You're doing treading water, swimming, you're doing shooting for hours upon hours in stressful situations and then just target practice. You're doing mat room training. It just goes on and on and on the list. And it's mm -hmm. just, it's very intense and stressful. And if you don't pass, and obviously you do things that, where it's practice and then it's the test. So it's like, okay, we're right. going to teach you to take apart this gun. And now we're going to, you're going to do it over and over and over again. And then we're going to test you on that. Mm. So, and you have to pass that test. So it's just stuff like that where you're, you're learning, but at the same time, you are tested on it as well. So it's very stressful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems very, it seems very rigorous. And I'm, I don't yeah. have a military background or certainly obviously a law enforcement background or anything like that. Um, I didn't either <laughs> until then. Yeah. Right. Right. But yeah, just in watching, uh, you know, listening to other podcast interviews and, and things like that with, with special forces guys, it seems like to be in something like CIA or secret service or something it would demand some higher level of training because I mean, I, ideally you never fight, right? right. But, oh, definitely not. But the whole point but, is that you, if you need to, you can. <laughs> correct. It should be a, kind of a muscle memory, like riding a bike. Mm. It should be, hey, you don't do this, but if you got into a situation where you needed this, you have it. And it is, it was definitely very intense, but then you get to the White House and you go through all this training and it's boring because you, you're, you're pumped up on all this adrenaline and you're like, I want something crazy to happen. I want this, I want to attack this fence jumper, pull out my weapon and shoot somebody. And, you know, I mean, you're just like, you're, you're doped up on all this adrenaline and you want it to be so exciting. And you get to the White House and you're sitting there in a box and you're like, oh my gosh, I want something fun to happen and I'm bored. So that was kind of the downfall of being at the White House. It was like, but yet the country's safe when we're not right. doing something bad happening. So it's this tug of war that you really, you really want something exciting because you want your adrenaline pumping, but then you don't because that means the president's safe and you're doing your job correctly because you're protecting Washington DC and the white house and the president of the right. United States. So it's just one of those things where it's a tug of war. So did you, um, did you have any, any peers or classmates? Like it was anyone that you knew also applying at the same time or were you completely oh, on I an was, island? I was completely by myself. I was an anomaly. I walked into training with my two pink Bear Bradley bags, which was a big mistake because I was showing them right away that I was a girly girl. And I, yet I was going in this male dominated environment and I was about to be punched in the face and thrown to the ground and shooting guns all the time. And yet here I am, you know, I love makeup. And when we would go out on the weekends down in training, I would wear my jean skirt and heels and we would go dancing. We had so much fun, but I just was that anomaly. But a, a technician there, he, he was a trainer, had it out for me. The minute he saw me walk through the doors, he was like, that girl is not going to pass training. I do not like her. She is not cut out to be a secret service officer. And I'm going to make sure that happens. And so during training, not only is it intense and stressful, I got put in situations that normal trainees don't get put in because he didn't like me. So normal right. situations would be we're training in the mat room and you, you usually do these training sessions with someone of the similar stature and weight as you because it mm -hmm. makes it easier to practice the maneuver so that you don't injure yourself or get hurt. Well, he put I was the tiniest one in the class and he put me with the biggest guy in the class, 350 pounds, six feet, five inches. I'm five, five. I was 120 pounds. I mean, huge difference. 
and we were having to flip each other over our shoulders. And so he was slamming me to the ground from six and a half feet high. And I was getting knocked out of the air every single time while everybody else in the room is of similar stature, similar weight. And they're actually doing the training correctly because they're not against somebody who, you know, is double their size, triple their size, really. Right. Well, how did you, so how did you process that mentally? I mean, it sounds like you were aware in the moment that mm-hmm. you're being treated differently and put in, in more precarious positions. Did that steal you to want to do it even more? Or did you have anxiety about it? Like, how did you deal with all of that? You're exactly right. So what it ended up doing was, so he judged a book by its cover. He thought because I was girly, because I just was skinny, that my physique just didn't have that law enforcement, strong uh, mentality. He, he judged me based on the way I looked, where he didn't realize that mentally I was extremely tough because of my upbringing, because of the way my dad raised my sister and me. He didn't realize that when you basically tortured somebody and cut them down and brought and put them in these situations that were extremely challenging, that he actually made me want to fight harder and want to prove myself more and more and more because of the situations he was putting me in. I feel like if he had Mm -hmm. made it easy on me, I kind of would have just been like, oh, okay, whatever. And I wouldn't have been as tough and as strong as I ended up being because of what he did. So I actually look at it as a benefit, to be honest. But going through the situation, right. it, was, it was physically draining and mentally draining. So I really had to dive down deep. And there were days I wanted to give up, but I had to dive down really deep and I had to push myself to keep going stronger, to keep pressing on one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. Because I knew that if I did not pass this, I would, I would think I would feel like such a failure for myself. I wanted to prove to my family, to my friends, and to him specifically that I wanted to do this more than anything. And that's so that's what motivated me. So every time you put me in a challenging situation, it actually was more motivation every single time. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how that works. I mean, this is going to sound like a really weird tie-in, and I don't know if it makes sense or not, but we'll we'll go for it. Um, (laughs) I'm sure it will be fine. I don't know if you are familiar with the author uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, he's a writes books on, I guess you could call it social science, but he, he, in one of his books, he talks about, um, the bombing in world war two and how the Germans bombed London for, I don't know, months or, or whatever it was. And the thought was that, and they're bombing, not military until they're just bombing the city. And the German thought was like, well, they'll eventually give up because they're bombing their city and their homes are being bombed. And certainly homes that are hit by a bomb and people who are directly injured or, you know, maybe their family members, they're impacted, but the bombs don't blow up entire city blocks at a time. And so what ends up happening is like a house gets hit, but then the houses next to it have this like survivor strength where Mm -hmm. they feel like they've made it through the bombing. Right. And so now they're even more strong-willed to fight back. (laughs) So it, it's the opposite you're, of breaking their morale. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. That's ex- It's almost like that survivor mentality where every day that you survive and every day you accomplish something else where you, you have a checkbox and you're like, hey, I, I just did that. I never thought I could do that. Oh, I just did that. And every day, and even situations he didn't put me in specifically, like sh- the shooting range, you know, I, my score started off low. I got, I got help from an instructor and I did so much better with my shooting and my qualifications and stuff like that. So it was just, everything was like, check. Okay. I did that. It kept motivating me day by day because I kept seeing myself get better and stronger and more capable. And because of that, it did make me want to survive as I love your story about that because it's like, yeah, you have this survivor mentality where it's like, Hey, I've accomplished this you know what? So I'm going to accomplish this and I'm going to accomplish this. And in my life, I was never able to do pull-ups in my life. And I knew going in, I was going to have to do so many pull-ups. And so I was training and strength training to constantly be doing these pull-ups because I knew that that was going to be a challenge for me. And that wasn't going to be easy. And so every day I was trying hard more and more and more to do that because I knew that that was going to be a struggle. So it's stuff like that where it's so important to, to actually know where your weaknesses are so that you know where to get more strength from and what to focus on. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think a lot of, I think the, the intuitive 
um, response to that is to focus on your strengths, mm-hmm. right? Because you're already strong there. But uh, if you're in a scenario like you found yourself in where the weaknesses are what's going to hold you back, then it makes obvious sense to, to focus your attention yeah. there instead. Well, I've always struggled so, with that. I've always struggled with, with, hey, what are your weaknesses? And nobody wants to pinpoint mm-hmm. their weaknesses. Nobody wants to sit there and say, well, let me tell you my whole list of weaknesses here. You know, you want to play your strengths because you want to know, you want people to be like, hey, you're awesome, right? But right. To, so to really have to acknowledge those weaknesses and to really pull those out and be like, hey, where am I weak? What do I need to work on? It takes a lot of insight into who you are as a person as well. And that was yeah. something I really tried to do is because I wanted to focus on where I was weak because I knew that that's what... I needed to do to pass. I needed to strengthen right. his weaknesses to pass. You know, obviously there's some challenges entering into the training as a, as a, a woman. Once you get through that, though, and you're actually a, an agent, did you find that your peers were more accepting of you or did you still run into some of those same challenges? Oh, my, my peers, my classmates, they were wonderful. They were supportive the whole time. They Now, I'll tell you, they were not supportive because in the fact that I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Okay. They were not <laughs> they were like, seriously. Talk about Barbie. If you do not shut up, I am going to make you shut up. They're like, why do you keep getting us in trouble, making us do extra laps or push-ups? Why do you keep writing extra memos when we don't want to write extra memos? That was the only thing they wanted me to do is just shut my mouth because I just am not good. I'm not good in military environments and being told what to do. I'm not a yes person. I'm a outside of the box thinker. So I, I like to think for myself and be like, hey, does that make sense or does it not make sense? I'm not quite sure. But for me, if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to question it. So they were wonderful and they supported me. They also knew I was naive and I was young. And so they really made fun of me a lot. And they put me in situations where I was the butt, the butt of every single joke. And, and it was funny. And I got to the point where I got used to that and I was okay with that. And I just knew that that was my place. And that was my role within my class was that I was everyone's joke. <laughs> so I just owned yeah. it. I mean, with the nickname like Talkback Barbie, how do you, how are you not becoming <laughs> everyone's joke, right? Well, and I think, you know, I don't know if it's unique to, um, to team kind of environments like that or, or what, but I think that that's pretty common. I mean, I, you know, I played sports growing up and, and that sort of stuff. And even to this day, I'm not a part of any sort of team, but just with my closer circle of friends, that kind of banter is really common. And, and honestly, it's like, like, if you're getting teased, that's because you're part of the group, right? Like the person who doesn't get teased is the person who's actually ostracized. Yeah. Um, no, but I don't exactly know that that's always right. yeah. obvious and, and, for people who aren't in that. And it's like the military environment where you get to be really close with these guys. And it was, they were like my brothers. That's how it felt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still keep in touch with a handful of them and it's like, they're my brothers and they're so sweet. And it's like, you can just jump right back into your friendship the minute you start talking and it's, it it was, it's such a great, because you got tied together with such stressful, strenuous things. And because of that, it just really bonds you where other people who haven't gone through that, they don't understand the same thing. And so it's hard for them to understand. And so it just gives you this bond that nobody else understands. It's hard to explain until you go through it, but it's like a sports team, same thing, like a sports team. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I, I will I will say, I'm pretty sure law enforcement and military service is a little more extreme than playing sports um, and yeah, <laughs> probably <laughs> probably a little harder. Um, I just, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm a huge NBA fan, so I, mm-hmm. I love 
basketball and, and sports in general. But I, I have become uncomfortable in the fat, last few years just with some of the language that's used to describe sports. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to war today. And it's like, no, you're not. Like, right. You're all millionaires and you're going to go play a game with the ball. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's not the same. Well, um, <laughs> and then sports, sports. So I look at sports as a gateway to law enforcement mm-hmm. and federal law enforcement because it trained me to tough it, tough it out. When you get that cramp, cramp in your side, when you're, when you're so tired, you just want to, you know, go jump in the bed and go to bed and you want to quit and you're just done or you lose race after race because you're not fast enough and you have to work harder at it so that you can get better so that you can win that race. It's just a prequel kind of for law enforcement. It's something that'll get you, it's not the same like what you said before, but it gets Mm -hmm. you prepared mentally and physically for what you will eventually have to endure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's certainly fair. Um, I think this will be my last question along the line of <laughs> female ser- secret service agent, oh, at least are. with the female bent to it. But did you, did you, were there other female circuit service agents? Is that really rare? Or when you became an agent, did you find like, Oh, there's some other ladies that have gone through something similar. Uh, nobody's gone through anything like what I went through. I'll tell you that. <laughs> right. That's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because okay. honestly, I don't think there's been anybody who has encountered something. At least I haven't heard about it. Anything sure. like I encountered. However, there was one girl in my training class and, but she had a different mentality where she wanted to prove herself so much that she would hurt anybody and everybody and just pound you to the ground. And it didn't matter. She wasn't like looking out for your best interest. She wasn't like, Hey, we're doing handcuff handcuffing technique right now. Let me be gentle because I just need to learn the technique. You don't have to kill somebody. Right. Oh my gosh. She would slam those handcuffs on my wrist to where Every time she did it, my, it was literally like my, my wrists were Indian burned and they were bruised, cut and so red and raw mm-hmm. that by the time we were done with the technique, I was just cringing to just touch my skin. And I, I, I sat there and I was like, listen, you could have taken it a little bit easier. I was like gentle and like nice, just trying to learn the techniques, but she was just out to, to get it done and to prove herself. So see, I had a different situation with her where she was like, I'm not going to let this girl outshine me. So she would, Mm -hmm. she would treat me actually tougher than the guys did. The guys were gentler to me than she was. So it was just a tug of war. I feel like the whole time for me and that, but that's what I love to share in the book is just that fighting through something, but not letting the discrimination tear you down and make you become somebody that you're not, you know, turning that discrimination into power and empowerment and using that and being like, Hey, you think so low of me, but I'm going to prove to you otherwise that I can do what you think I can't do. So instead of like turning it around and it's the glass half full mentality where you look at it and you're so discouraged and depressed, it's use these words as to empower you to do something more and to get through something that you never thought you could get through. Because for Mm -hmm. me, I found that that's something that's more encouraging than anything. I mean, having a good support system is really good too, but the, just being able to prove yourself and to say, Hey, this is what you thought of me. And I'm proving you completely wrong. And that's empowering in and of a, in and of itself. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So I'm curious, again, I, my impression of the secret service is there are places where the president is talking, Mm -hmm. right. And maybe other politicians or something i don't know but what is the you know you mentioned earlier that when you get to the white house it's actually kind of boring mm-hmm. what is the day in the life of a secret service agent is it yeah are you like a fireman where you're like waiting for a call and you slide down the pole or obviously i'm kidding but no no no, you're fine <laughs> i so so the, so they have the uniform division which is what i was and then they have the agents so the agents are the ones in the suits that follow the president okay. They're more, they're closer tied to the president. Now, not to say I saw the president of the United States, but uniform division, we work at the White House, foreign mission branches up in DC or the vice president's residency. So those are the only locations that uniform division work. Now, if the president is going to go to a location to have a speech, whatever it might be, uniform division officers will travel with the agents to go inspect the area, make sure everything's okay. They will scan people into events. They'll do all that kind of stuff. 
So I what I mean is we basically protect the white. Well, I was at the White House. So we basically protect the White House. So we are at stations, all posts all around the White House. And we are there and we wrote you rotate shifts and you rotate posts throughout your shift. And you can be forced your days off. You can be forced four hours over. It, you could be forced to midnight shift. If you work the morning, you could be forced to midnight shift that, that same day. So you're mm. exhausted, you're tired, and you're protecting the White House. So that could be anywhere from scanning bags in, admit, you know, admitting people in, who are in the wave system. You have a lot of Fox News, CNN, all of the news people that you're, you're having them come in and out of the White House constantly. And then mm. obviously you have the motorcades coming in and out. You know, you have the president going to this event or that event or going to Camp David or he's going to get on the helicopter, you know, Air Force One or wherever, whatever it might be. And you're having to man the White House and make sure that everything is set up correctly and let them know, hey, the president's coming your way. The president's coming your way or the first lady's coming your way. So you're just kind of you're manning all the posts and making sure that everything is intact and everything is the way it should be running at the White House. Gotcha. Gotcha. So did you ever have to use your weapon in any sort of confrontation or not really? Not really I never hard? did, but there was one guy who was, was bored and decided that he would use his weapon and was playing with it in one of the posts and ended up having a negligent discharge and shot. His oh, <laughs> wow. That's, that's tough. Oh yeah. That's, he, uh, he shot himself in the foot, I mean, literally. <laughs> <laughs> and probably figuratively in his and, career. Yes, and he got fired. Yes, so figuratively too. <laughs> I mean, that sucks to have happen like in your home or your yard or something, mm-hmm. but certainly worse at the White House. Uh, uh, definitely. And the booths <laughs> are bulletproof. So you've got, so in these posts and in these booths, you've got the where the bullet hit. You can see in the where the bullet hit because, you know, it bounces around in the bulletproof glass and you're just, oh my gosh. We have hilarious stories. It was just a lot of fun and a lot of laughter. And that's, that's kind of what I wanted to share that the secret service. Yes, we have, it's a very, very serious career, but man, it can be fun too. And I wanted to, this is kind of like Miss Congeniality meets Legally Blonde in the secret service, kind of the feel of all the stories and what happened to me while I was there. Yeah. Well, so I'm curious, you know, so you said that you stopped in, in 06, is that right? Yeah, I wasn't there for very long. I, was, I worked for a year and a half and I was I was bored. But like I told you before, I, I was burnt out. The shift work was incredible. I don't know if you've ever worked shift work before. It is grueling. And I thought I could handle it, but I was newly married at the time. I, it, I was burnt out. My days off would be canceled all the time. You're forced days four hours over. So you're working, sometimes you're working weeks at a time without any days off and 12 hour mm-hmm. days. So long days, it's just grueling and it's exhausting. It's tired, tiring. And I wanted to do more. I was, a, I'm a very social person and I love talking to people and being around people. And some of the posts you're around people, but other posts you're not. And it's kind of lonely and you're just kind of like, Oh, you're just protecting the white house, waiting for something bad to happen is what you're doing. So that's why we goof off and we would play jokes and pranks on each other all the time and do all the fun things like that because you got to pass the time somehow, right? Which means trouble. (laughs) Right, right. Well, so yeah, so I was going to ask, I think you you just kind of answered it, but so it doesn't sound like it's very easy to have (laughs) a quote unquote normal social life in that career because of the schedule, if nothing else. Right. It's not. It's really hard. And that's what especially because I was so young at the time and I was trying to live, I was trying to balance both. I was trying to be a wife. I was trying to be a career woman in this exciting career. That was an amazing accomplishment. I would never take it back for the world. And I was trying to hang out with my friends and have a social life. And I couldn't plan anything. I couldn't even plan a doctor's appointment because my day off could be canceled and I have to cancel my doctor's appointment. I mean, it's just, it was very, and as much as I knew this going into it, you don't understand the ramifications of it until you actually personally experience it and go through it. And then I realized, wow, this is way tougher than I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to be able to handle it, but because I wanted to be more social than I wanted to focus on a career at that point, I felt like it was taking away too much of my social life. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I completely get it. Um, I, I try not to talk about my day job too much on the show here, but in the last couple of years, I, uh, have taken a job where I have on-call weekends uh-huh. somewhat frequently. 
And yeah, I'd never done something like that before. And I thought, oh, that's no big deal. And yeah, I don't like it at all. And again, not to bitch about my job all of a sudden, but just yeah. to your point of you don't really know what you're going to think of it until you do something like that. That's um, right. Well, because you're thinking in your head, it, overtime means extra money. That's awesome, right. right? And you're like, this is great. Hey, maybe maybe it works out that it's overtime so that I miss traffic going home. Oh, that's awesome too. So all these really good things you're thinking at the time and then you actually experience it and you're sitting there and you're exhausted, tired, your lunch is all done, you need you you're forced four more hours, you're starving to death, you're mm. falling asleep on post because you're you've been shift changed 20 times in the past month and it's just it's grueling and it really on your physical just health it is detrimental yeah it's it's really uh i don't know surprising and disappointing to hear that the secret service scheduling uh is not that different than your local mcdonald's yeah scheduling no like, <laughs> because the way i look at it is okay you're you need to protect the president of the united states right so you need these people to be on alert you right. need them to be but they're not because they're so exhausted, tired. And maybe the shift change at the first shift comes in, they're they're more alert, obviously. But if you've been there for 14, 16, 20 hours, it's a whole nother ball game. And, yeah. you, and the problem is, is that the turnaround, the turnover at the Secret Service, it, that's why people are forced our days off, uh, four hours over. And the reason being is because the turnover, they don't have enough bodies for the shifts that are needed. Hmm. And that, and it's because it is so grueling and so exhausting and so tiring and right. that people end up leaving to go do other things because it's higher pay, better hours, whatever it might be. So when you left, did you, did you try and pursue, or did you maybe not try, but did you pursue a career in law enforcement outside of the secret service? Is that when most agents do, or what's that look like when people leave? I wanted to, I, my goal, my dream was to go and be an FBI agent. And that was what I was going to do is work for the secret service for three years. And then I was going to go work, apply for the FBI. But because of the shift work, I decided that I didn't think that the FBI was going to be a good fit for me either because of all the moving around. I wouldn't be able to be near my family. I knew I wanted to have kids eventually. All of that stuff, I figured, I felt like I learned from the Secret Service. And that's why I never pursued my dream as an FBI agent is because I just didn't think it was going to be a good fit for me. So what yeah. I ended up doing is working for a government consulting firm up there in D.C. And okay. that way you can use your top secret SCI security clearance and you have consistent hours, you're working with the government, you're working with government employees, but you are a contractor. So you're at all these government facilities and sites. I worked at the CIA headquarters up there. I worked at the National Counterterrorism headquarters up in D uh, Virginia. I worked with the FBI, Department of State, you name it. So I was able to work with all these federal law enforcement agencies because of my background and because of my clearance. So that was I cool. See. It was very interesting. I got to see a whole other side of the government that I had never seen before. And I can't, again, I would never change any of my career paths for anything because it was just the experience of what I got to learn and understand and see. Right. So I, this is maybe a stranger question or personal, but no, you're I'm curious at how you, how, how is your husband the most confident man ever? Because <laughs> I'm, I mean, you're, you know, you're a pretty lady and you're a secret service agent. Like that's the most intimidating thing in the world. Like if I met a, a girl and she was like, yeah, I'm a secret service agent. Like I'm out, I'm out. I, <laughs> like, I can't handle her. Well, yeah, he, he's not very good at handling me. I'll tell you that. But he, he's kind of like, and I got to walk away from this situation because Lauren doesn't shut up. She, and I'm very stubborn, hard headed, strong willed. <laughs> But no, we have a very trusting relationship. So it's not, we don't have, I don't know. We just don't dis, have any distrust in our relationship. And sure. we just know that if that did happen, if anything like that happened, we'd be like, okay, bye. You know, there's just nothing that, um, I don't know. It's just, it's all trust, I guess, is the biggest thing about it. And yeah. we just kind of, he's quieter, more introverted. I'm more the outgoing, talkative one, wants to be, it, with you know all the people all the parties everything like that so sure sure the balance i guess well, yeah yeah again tip of the cap <laughs> to him i just i yeah i was just impressed that someone could 
could marry a Secret Service agent because I again I would be very intimidated by that. So um, good on both of you. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. He was he was questioning it. I mean, he he never he never said I couldn't do it, but he was kind of like, okay, that's fine. I know that's what you want to do, but right. you know. <laughs> Now you've written the book, um, Talk Back Barbie. So when did that idea come about? Had you ever been a writer before? Was that something that your family did? I mean, you said your dad was a CPA. Was your mom an author by chance? No. <laughs> no. Like five years ago, my dad grilled me. He, he goes, Lauren, you have amazing stories. You have such an empowering story to tell the world about. He goes, I think you should write a book about your experience working with the secret service. And I think you should share your stories. And I looked at him and I laughed in his face. And I said, dad, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to write a book. I don't know how to write a book. I don't, I don't even have enough stories to write a book about. I don't, I didn't even know the process. I don't even know how to do any of that. And about I, this, so I published it this January. So it's brand new just this year. But it took me a little over a year to write it, to write it, publish it, get everything together, because I was just very OCD because I go, if I'm going to put this out there, I'm going to make sure it's the best it can be. I, I worked forever on it. I hired a professional editor once I got all, everything written and I had him go through it and each chapter and vamp it up and make it even better. So we worked together really well for probably three or four of those months. And, and then I went to a publishing company. Well, I self-published it, but I went to a printing company and they helped me print it. But I had no intention of writing a book. It's just that once I started writing it, I just discovered that I really was learning a lot about myself and I was yeah. learning a lot about what I felt like I needed to share with other people about how I was pretty much discriminated against and how another podcast I was on, basically he was saying how a lot of times people say a lot of times beautiful women can get ahead faster in life. And what's funny is I actually feel like I had the opposite experience of that. I, I felt like I got discriminated more and judge, I was judged by the, the minute I walked into the room kind of thing. Right. They never got to know me until they just looked at me and that this is what they thought about me. They thought, oh, she's stuck up. Oh, she's snobby. Oh, she's this. Oh, she was the most popular girl in school or in her class. And once they got to know me, they realized I act like a guy. A lot of times I was actually not popular in school. I couldn't get dates in high school. I couldn't get homecoming prom. I had to ask guys to go with me. I mean, this is what people don't understand. They judged me the minute they looked at me, but then they get to know me and they go, wow, everything is so different about you because I'm the complete opposite of what I would, what I look like, if that makes sense. Like I'm very sure. tough. I rarely cry. I mean, if I cry, it's for a really good reason. And right. I'm just, uh, I guess, hardcore like that. But you wouldn't think that on the surface. I'm very competitive. I love to play tennis. So when you get to those kind of things about me, it's, I don't know. That's, I guess that's why I felt like I needed to write the book is because I felt like I needed to show the world that, hey, even though the, they set these obstacles and these things against you, it doesn't mean you have to fail that only you can define your successes or your failures yourself. So if I had quit because they discriminated against me or talked down to me and told me I couldn't do it, then that's on me. That wasn't on anybody else except for myself. The problem was that I wasn't going to let myself fail. I wanted to prove to them that I was going to be better and I was going to be something that they didn't think I could do. So that was the real motivation behind writing the book. Yeah. Well, you definitely bring up an interesting point. I mean, you know, I think at the very beginning of the conversation, you, you use the, the phrase of don't judge a book by its cover. Yes. And obviously it's a common turn of phrase, but usually it is 
I think used when describing like the cover of the book looks like it's not going to go well mm -hmm. for some reason, which arguably is what they thought in your case is also correct. <laughs> but, but, but typically it's like, it's associated with like a, a Quasimodo type character or something. Right. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right that it, it, it can go the other way as well. And ultimately it's, it is, it really is. Don't judge a book by its cover, not just don't mm -hmm. judge an unattractive book. No, <laughs> by its cover. no, you're exactly right. And the funny thing is in my book, I, it's not just men, it was women too. I had a right. lot of women who went behind my back just because they didn't like me. And I, it was not, I was kind to them. I was nice to them, but they legit just did not like me by the way I looked and they would tell on me for things that everybody else was doing. And I would get in trouble for them, even though everybody else was doing it, I would get in trouble. And I would, because they did not like me, they would pull me out of the crowd and make me the, basically the poster child of what not to do, even though every right. single person's doing it. So it's just those kind of things where, but it made me a stronger human being. It made me, it made me realize like, you just don't take other people's crap. You, you just kind of go with, with the flow and with life and you give people the benefit of the doubt. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in even the technician who was so cruel and stuff. I actually thank him for what he did for me because he gave me these extra challenges and these extra hurdles that made me stronger and made me realize that like I am more than what I thought I, I I even thought I was and so as much as these people in your life can can maybe give you these extra hurdles and these extra challenges you can actually use it it's kind of like helpful criticism you can actually use it to your benefit more than anything and that's what I did all these situations where girls hated hated on me or guys judged the book by its cover when they didn't think I was tough enough or I was too girly to do something I just used it to fuel me and keep me going day by day and made, and it made me a stronger person because of that. Yeah. Well, you know, you've said this already, but I just think it's worth reiterating. Um, you know, to some extent you're proving yourself to these other people, to the instructors or to your peers or whatever, but more than that, you're proving yourself to yourself. That's right. right? And that and gets lost. The, I think. No, but that's the whole point. That's the whole point is right. people, think that, oh, I grew up in this lifestyle. I grew up with this family. I grew up like this. I, my, you know, this is my situation. Wow, wow, wow. And I'm like, don't get me wrong. That adds extra challenges. It really does. But my point is, is that only you can succeed or fail. You can either use those, the, the motive, you know, maybe coming from no money or coming from money. Cause sometimes people coming from money fail more than people coming from no money. And the reason being is because they think everything's going to be a free handout. So they right. end up being, you know, drug users or they blow up all, all this inheritance and they end up being poor. And right. so what people don't understand, it doesn't matter where you came from. It's what you use to motivate you, to keep you going and to keep you getting to the place that you want to be. So do you want to succeed or do you want to fail? Just because someone's telling you you can't do it and you listen to them, that's on you. That's on you if you want to fail because someone else is cutting you down and telling you you can't do it. You know what you no. do? You take that person and you cut them out of your life and you go and get somebody in your life who is going to encourage you and empower you and get you to go the right path that you want to go on. It's okay to yeah. cut strings and bridges so that you get to the people that are going to motivate you to succeed. And that's, that's kind of what I like to talk to people about is because I, I think it's important that you don't use your situation and your circumstances to define who you are, that you define your circumstances and your situation. And that's really important because so many people like to do the wow, wow, wow story. And I could have done that in my book. I could have said, oh, well, I failed because of this and this and this and use all these excuses. Or I could could write a book like what I did and say, no, I didn't fail. I, I succeeded because I proved myself. I proved that I was worthy of what I of what I was successful with. And so I think yeah. that's just so important that people understand that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I think that there's a, along the lines of this conversation, I think that two words that get interchanged that are not actually interchangeable is blame and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. it is fair that a person could have circumstances outside of their control mm -hmm. that are to blame legitimately Correct. for whatever, wherever they find themselves. 
and what I've found in the last few years is that it is each person's responsibility to to help themselves as much as they can. And I used to think that that was like a statement about like morals or ethics or justice. Like it's fair for everyone to be responsible for themselves. But what I've actually come to understand is that it's just literally true. Like it doesn't matter how much I love someone else right. in the end, I can't be responsible for them. Not because it's unhealthy. It just doesn't work. It doesn't like, work. Even your it's own not children. Possible. You can right. coach them and guide them and pray for them and, and do everything you want for your child. Yeah. But it's how they live their life and what they do with that, that matters. Did you instill enough, you know, morals and, and good things in that child? Possibly. But did they get in with the wrong crowd, the wrong group? Like you, as much as you want to control everything that they do, you can't, you have zero. The only person you have control over is yourself. That's it. Right. And and so that's why I tell people all the time, how are you going to handle this situation? How are you personally going to handle this situation? And and then that's where you go with that. And right. and that's, I mean, that's pretty much what people need to understand. Because when you start trying to control other people, you get so bogged down with their failures and their depressing decisions that they make that you are just like, oh my gosh. You, and then you let well, those, those define you too. And that's horrible. You don't want to do that. Right. Well, or even their successes, you know, I, I there yes, was a, a, exactly. a guy who was a running back for Ohio State a long time ago now. I mean, 2002, I think. Mm -hmm. But he's basically the same age as LeBron James and comes from like 40 minutes away. But instead wow. of basketball, he played football. And he was supposed to be the next, like the next LeBron, except in football, right? Mm -hmm. And he ends up getting out of getting kicked out of school early. You can't join the NFL for a few years until you've been out of high school. So he just kind of lives this party life, but he's affiliated with people like LeBron and, and back then like 50 Cent and Jay-Z and this celebrity culture, but he's not really a celebrity right. yet. Like, I mean, he's famous, so maybe right. he's a celebrity, but he's not made any money. Right. And so he goes down this path of living this high-flying party style, and it turns out those aren't his successes. Those aren't his wins. You know what right. I mean? So No, I totally understand. He was defined by who he was around. Not right. his own personal successes and his own, what he yeah. did himself. And that right. that's huge. I mean, again, that's a great example. I, yeah. I love that. It's just, it's interesting how it can always go both ways, right? It can like go those... both ways, always, <laughs> always. Um, so, you know, you mentioned that it took a, about a year for you to write the book. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what was your writing process like? Did you, did you have kind of an idea and write an outline? Were you doing like free writing things? Like how did you actually get words onto paper? Oh man. Uh, I basically just started writing. So thoughts, stories, I just wrote. And so I write the way I speak. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it took a, it took a lot where I had to bring it down, bring it down. Cause I'm very wordy. I'm very mouthy as you all know. So I just, I just wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I just didn't stop. And then I obviously edited and edited. And then I separated things into different chapters or different sections and I just kept doing that. That's why it took me so long is because I kept moving things around and adding to, and I would sit down with my sister to help me describe things. And it was just a very, very long process because I was trying, I was having to compartmentalize everything, just kind of be like, okay, this should be chapter one. This should be this. And then once I got with the editor, all of that was pretty much done. And then he just went through and helped me with the chapters. Some of the chapters we merged together he maybe split some of the chapters or made an extra chapter, that kind of stuff. And then he helped me edit it and make it funnier and just even more detailed. So it was just, it was a long process because it is a lot of, I didn't really have an outline or, or a real process, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I just kind of threw all my stories and thoughts. And sometimes I would be thinking and I'd be like, oh gosh, this, this story, this idea. And I'd be like, da, 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 da. And I'd write these outlines over here and then come back to it and write a story about it. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was very combobulated. It was all over the place. It was a nightmare. But at the same time, <laughs> uh, I just tried to really organize it the best I could. And it ended up working out. But it took that's why it took me so long is just to get it into the format it is today, which is, you know. Well, I, I, 
I will say uh, you you are, are very humble. I've interviewed a lot of authors at this point, and uh, to write a book, especially with no previous writing experience in a year, is not a really long time. So you did great. Well, <laughs> not that you need an attaboy from me, but again, as someone who's interviewed other authors, I can tell you that a year is not a long time. Uh, and I actually think it's pretty impressive that you were able to do it within a year. Oh, thanks. Maybe because it was personal stories and it was a little bit easier than coming up with maybe a fictional storyline, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, obviously you're someone who's, uh, whenever you set your mind to something, that's what's happening, right? Yeah. So. I think there's probably something to be said. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's why I, when I really set my mind, I say, I'm going to go with this. I better give it my, I will give it my 110% and I will go with yeah. it. Uh, and I won't stop until it's completed. So I have to really want it if that's what I'm setting my mind to. So, well, I just, I think, and the reason I wanted to ask you that question is because, you know, again, I have interviewed other authors and, and for listeners who maybe have thoughts about being a writer, but they haven't written before or, whatever the case may be, like, it's awesome to hear a story of someone who's not previously an author, yeah. doesn't come from a background of writers or something. No, not at all. And it took a year. And I don't, I also don't mean to act like, oh, a year is nothing. I mean, yeah, that is a long time to be working on something, but some people work for years and still don't have a book. Oh, right. Okay. So definitely. Um, well, so I think it's really listeners... powerful. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but if any of your listeners ever want to reach out and ask a question, if they are interested in writing a book, they are more than welcome to email me through my website and, and I will answer whatever questions they have. And I'll give them what my feedback, my personal feedback. I'm, I definitely don't have the answers. I'll tell you that I'm still every day searching and promoting and figuring out what you're supposed to do. It's just a learning curve every single day. So yeah, listeners are interested. They're more than welcome to ask me any questions they have. Awesome. Well, that's super generous. Well, I'm curious, you know, now you've gone through this process. So now you are an author. Now you're, you you can not say that you're not an author anymore. That's a, a fact now. So do you think that you, and I know this is, you know, this book just come out this year, so I'm not trying to, to, to move on, but do you think you'd be interested in writing something else in the future? Or you think this is going to be it for you as an author? A lot of people ask me that right now. My primary focus is promoting this book. Uh, that's my primary focus. That's what I'm doing all the podcasts on. I've gotten some ideas for a second book. It would be completely fictional, the second book, but it would be going along the lines of Talkback Barbie, of course, and possibly the FBI. So I don't know, but I've been, and it, it would totally be humorous, making fun of myself, pulling out things of my real life, everyday life that's going on now and inserting that, but inserting a lot of fiction and comedy. I, I, I'm a firm believer in laughing at yourself. I, I am, I'm the type of yes. person that I just don't, I feel like I learned so much when you laugh at your mistakes and then you get over them and you learn through them. But laughter is just so important because it, we all make mistakes. We all do things that are stupid. We all misspeak. We all miswrite. Just think about some of the emails we send out that we're like, oh gosh, did we really just mean to send that out? Hey, laugh about it. Send that email back and be like, hey, and do some ha-has, some smiley faces, whatever, and just laugh about it and make it a joke. And I'm really good at that. I, I make fun of myself all the time, all the time, because I'm always doing something stupid. But I just feel like that laughter is so important right. to be able to really learn who you are as a person and help you get through things that are sometimes a little tough. Because when you laugh through it, it ends up making something that's a little bit more uncomfortable, more comfortable. And so uh, that's what I've seen. I've learned through my life and what I've gone through. So I love it. We are we are kindred spirits in that way. <laughs> I uh also constantly mess up and constantly laugh at myself. Yeah. And I've actually, you know, I have a circle of friends that I've had for most of my life, really. And so to introduce anyone new into that social group is pretty rare, just because we've all known each other for so long. And I thought yeah. I've thought about like, what is it that does cause me to invite someone else to hang out with that group? And I think really the most fundamental quality is can you laugh at yourself? Because if you can't, there's just going to be drama at some point, And I don't, care like i don't i'm not in it so oh, I'm anti-drama like i said before i act i act very much like a guy i'm anti-drama i like to just you know i like to laugh i like to joke i don't really like things to be too serious i don't like things to be very emotional because that just i'm like ah, I'd, I'd rather things i don't mind if things get real i don't mind those questions but i just i don't right. want to dive into the emotions where everyone's like starts crying and telling their i don't mind listening to the stories but I just, I, I don't 
do so well with that. I do much better with laughter. I'm the type of person who starts laughing in a very uncomfortable situation when I should not be laughing. That's me. <laughs> I am too. Oh my God. I've gotten so, in some, a lot of Yes. Well, sometimes it's because whatever is happening, even if it's bad, is so absurd. Yes. That it's like, how is this not funny? Like, it's yes. funny that it's that it worked out this poorly, right? Right. But it's hard to convince other people who don't think that way to think that way. So I know. I know. Um, it is hard. I do agree with you. And believe me, I get in trouble all the time for that. I laugh in <laughs> uncomfortable situations. <laughs> Well, Lauren, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you this evening. Uh, again, the book is Talk Back Barbie Secret Service Edition. Um, you have the website, talkbackbarbie.com. So I'll have a, a link to that in the show notes. Is there anywhere else you'd like me to, to link for people to connect with you? That's the best place to get all of the information. My Kindle is available on Amazon if they want to go there. And the paperback's also available uh, at barnesandnoble.com. Awesome. Well, Lauren, again, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun and a lot of laughter. Stay in the shrine Burning blank 
That's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Lauren Fernandez for stopping by and sharing her walk of life. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you, listener, for listening. I also invite you to check out my other shows, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game podcast where we explore the idea of why gaming matters, or my other show, The Crowfall Podcast, which shares stories and perspectives from the MMO Crowfall. Both of these are available on any podcast app. Thanks again for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up. <laughs>